Hello and welcome to the 100 Campaigns That Changed the World podcast. This episode features Margaret Aspinall, who is chair of the Hillsborough Family Support Group uh, and led for many years the Campaign for Justice for the 96 Liverpool fans who died in the terrible disaster at the Hillsborough Stadium during a football match between Liverpool and Nottingham Forest back in 1989. Now, there's a lot of information to be found about the disaster. For instance, a very good uh, BBC film uh, from 2016, which you can find on YouTube. So I won't go into details of that now, but the... Hillsborough Justice Campaign has been one of the most high-profile campaigns, certainly in the UK, which has seen the families of the 96 set against parts of the British establishment, especially the police, who've been shown to have spread misinformation on a grand scale about what happened on that day. It's a campaign which hasn't quite run its course, as we'll hear in the interview, but one is which has made, I think, massive progress in terms of getting to the truth about what happened, uh, which is uh, ultimately what the what the families wanted um, and was their objective. So I went up to Liverpool to meet Margaret in um, March of 2018, and um, I think it's it's a very uh, Revealing interview. It's it's quite emotional at times, but um, it's a, it's it's an emotional issue, so that's to be expected. Um, so I hope you'll have a listen. Thanks. Hello, everyone. I'm up at. Liverpool uh, today at the football club uh, with Margaret Aspinall from the Hillsborough Family Support Group. Hello, Margaret. Thanks for your time today. Um, so, um, so in this in this interview, we're not going to go into great details of what happened during that terrible day in in 1989. That's been well documented, and there's been a number of documentary films that cover it, as you know. So, um, but I'm interested in in um, in what happened. Um, after that time, and in particularly in the in the days and weeks and months following it, so I don't know if you can sort of just recount those first few painful days and weeks, and and in particularly when you sort of first felt that you needed to have a campaign, uh, or that you felt that you weren't going to get justice um, for for your, for yourselves and and for the ninety six and for the families. I think that started in the very early days, actually. It started a couple of days after the disaster. <clears throat> Obviously, because I'm sure, as everybody's up, should be aware now of a certain newspaper that printed a terrible headline, um, you know, trying to blame the fans for what happened on the 96. So when the headline to that newspaper came out, and that was only relatively four days, I think, or three days after the disaster, without anybody consulting the families, talking to the families, um, just decided to make this, this headline. To me, that was a disgrace. It was, it was the start 
of an injustice. And then I can go a little bit further and say four weeks later, after that headline, within four weeks later, there was a big memorial service in the Anglican Cathedral. And it's a thing I'll never forget. Uh, obviously, the then Prime Minister, um, who was Margaret Thatcher on the day, was in attendance, along with a lot of other people and MPs. And we got asked to go down into the crypt after the service to meet with Margaret Thatcher, which the families did. And as you can imagine, within four weeks after that disaster, everybody was devastated. They were all in a terrible, terrible mess. So, of course, families were doing as they were told. And it was like regimented is the word I'll use. And that is where, you, you know, you're all standing in a line and Mrs Thatcher will come along and shake hands with you. And I will never forget when she came to me. I can't speak for the other families. I can only speak about what happened with me. And I have said it openly and I'll say it again. Uh, I would not shake her hand. And the reason I wouldn't shake her hand is because I wanted the, to know what happened at Hillsborough. What caused it? Who caused it? And why was there a certain headline in a certain newspaper? Who did they speak to to put that in the headlines? And I will never forget her response to me. Obviously, I'm not going to say other things because the lady's dead. Well, I say lady, but the woman is dead. And I don't want to show any disrespect to a family that might be living now. But I've got to say, I was appalled by her response to me. When I asked her that, she said to me, and I can remember when something sticks in your head and that does not leave you. And it was, my dear, there were 750 policemen on duty that day. And I said, no, Mrs. Thatcher, you've got that wrong. There was more than 750. Can I ask you, what were they doing? And her response to me was, their job, my dear, their job. And I better step away from you because you are so angry. And I turned around and said, yes, that is why I didn't shake your hand. I, I would have willingly shook your hand if we'd have got the truth. But I can see now, I don't think we're ever going to get it. So from, from, from that moment on, I guess, you you felt that you were up against it in yes. terms of um, the authorities, the way that the police were handling it and the, the, whole, and establishment. the whole establishment. Now, uh, at that time, did you have a sense that this will, what you had was a, a campaign? And, and when did you first realise, I don't know, what, what you were trying to achieve with, with that campaign? Well, I knew, um, I mean, I've got to say, that, uh, we didn't have a group at that time. You know, the, the, obviously, you know, the group all met together, everybody's names. And that was through a, a good few people within our group who's recent, who's died of these past few years. And her name was Joan Trainer, Bill Pemberton. Uh, these are people that you can't forget. 
and they asked social works to get addresses for all people who had died, who'd lost somebody. And I think it was round about, we first got together, a meet, first meeting was round about the beginning of maybe May or June, the end of May, beginning of June. And all families met, not far from here, over the road. And it was a place called the Vernon Sparks Sandstead. And I remember walking into this room and seeing so many people but so much devastation. It was like, to me, it was like a dark, dark room because there was so much hurt, so much loss. Um, and that is the time we all decided we need to stick together to try and get to the truth of what happened at Hillsborough. And it was at that time we decided we had to have a chairman, vice chairman, secretary, and obviously maybe a treasurer to raise funds because we weren't rich people. We were just ordinary people who needed to fight a system. We knew we had to fight a system to get to the truth. And we elected a, a guy named, and I'm sure you've, everybody's heard of him, Mr. Trevor Hicks, who lost his two beautiful daughters. And we had a, a, a guy named Bill Pemberton on the committee. So we made a committee up then. I was just a member then of the group. We all became members of a group. So nobody could join our group, only those people who'd lost. And that's where our group was. And we had a great spokesperson with Trevor. You know, he'd done an amazing job. We had a guy named Phil Hammond, who was Trevor's vice chair. And he was absolutely amazing as well. They worked so hard over a number of years. So I, I, I think that when it stems by families, I mean, what I would, the message I give out to people now is stay strong, stay together, stay united. If you're fighting for something that's so right, so proper, so just, you must all stay together because I think the easiest thing for anybody within the powers that be is for families to have split up yeah. and to have argued between each other that they would have won then yeah but the families were so brilliant at I mean even to this day we still have 77 members within the group and they just believe people who have lost yeah and to me, that is a great achievement for nearly 29 years. Yeah, so yeah, it's great that you had the unity and, and you had that sort of spirit. But did you get help from anyone? If you think back to those early days, who, who helped you? Was there anyone or any group? or any... Uh, In them early days, it was a very difficult time for the families. Uh, no, really, because I think we had, as not just the established, but the media, as well was against us because if people go back and look at the i mean we've got newspaper cuttings there we've still kept them it wasn't just the headline of a that certain newspaper but other papers if you go inside the pages they were very critical as well mm. they were just as bad actually right. but the difference was they didn't make it the headline mm. what did you get any journalists who wanted to get to the truth? Oh, oh, absolutely. I mean, we had a guy who who worked 
at the time for the Liverpool Echo. And I'm sure he won't mind me mentioning his name, Brian Reed. And uh, I think he was at the game as well that day. And he was determined to get the truth. Even to this day, we've got like David Kahn, who writes for The Guardian. Yeah. You know, he's been tremendous. Um, there's other journalists as well, but they were just a few far yeah. between. Yeah. And they had a difficult time because they wanted to print the truth and they knew what happened. They have a difficult time, as you know what it's like. Um, if you go against certain things, you can be ostracised. And um, so, in terms of in terms of your um, your, your your early days and setting up the, the campaign that you've described, would would you say that you kind of knew what you wanted from the beginning? I mean, obviously, you wanted justice, you wanted the truth to come out. But in terms of like the the stepping stones to getting there, did you? Did you have a clear idea of, of what you were trying to achieve at each stage? or did that? Uh, yes, changing? because, you know, I mean, if you go back into the history of Hillsborough, what the Hillsborough Family Support Group's done over the years, you know, we've, as you, you know, we had, um, we had the generic inquest, we had a mini inquest first, generic inquest, we've had um, scrutiny, we've had the Taylor report, uh, we've been, we've, We've done all different things. We've had the private prosecution. We've gone through every channel. And every channel that we went through always made it look as if they were going to give the families some sort of accountability. And towards the end of everything we went down, it was like a slap in the face again. You know, no, there's not enough evidence. Not enough evidence. Mm. Show us the evidence. Well, we used to say, well, OK. The evidence is there, but you're not giving it to us. You've got it. Get, you give us all the freedom of information. Give us all them papers and we'll give you the evidence. You must have seen it. And this wasn't just to, like, the, as we could say, uh, Taylor or Stuart Smith. This was to everybody that we were speaking to, even when we met with the likes of Jack Straw. The evidence is there, Mr. Straw. You go and ask for it. It's there. Before they shred it, go get it. So we were fighting for sort of freedom of information, you know, as well, mm. to get all this to us. And there's no evidence. I mean, I can tell you in the very early days, I was writing off and I was asking, look, is there any coverage of James at all in the pens? Who helped James? Please, just give me anything at all, because I need to know who was with my son when he died. The BBC had footage, obviously, didn't e they? Exactly, but and we so didn't get hold of it. When did they release their footage? Well, that was where prob I think most of it started to get released when we actually got the HIP, mm. which is the Hillsborough Independent Panel. All that's been there for all of them years, and yet... These sort of people knew we were fighting. We were fighting for information. We were fighting to see documents. I haven't got none. When I was asking about video coverage for James, they showed my, my family a little tiny piece 
of James. That's all we've got on James. And it was more or less as when he was, uh, uh, when he was outside, brought out the pen. There's nothing else. I was saying, well, could you tell me what time? Exactly? Who's certified James dead? What time? Then you get two different times of death. Now you start thinking about that. Why have I got two different times of death? Please don't come back to me and tell me it was a typing error. That's exactly what God said afterwards. It was a typing error. No, I didn't believe that I felt it fitted in to what they were saying. Mm -hmm. I can't explain it properly to you because I've got to be very careful. Yeah. But I, I didn't know till 2016 when James's own inquest came up, what we fought for to change the verdicts. And, and when, at the last inquest, when we got the correct verdict, there was a load of video coverage of James. I was getting told it was not. So when did you? When was that that you found out? I've seen that when we were, we were at the last inquest, which was in. Well, it started after twenty. It finished in twenty sixteen. Uh, sorry, twenty sixth of April, twenty sixteen. Two years ago, hmm. it was the very latest inquest. So you waited. So all them years. Nearly thirty it's years. It's there. And it was there the whole time. It was there the whole so time. Have you had a, what explanations have you had about why that was withheld? Uh, well, they don't give you. You don't get any explanations. You know, it was. Um, it, it, it's very difficult for people to understand. I mean, there's a lot of things that went on. I mean, have you heard the word chain of causation? But what they were saying to us with a chain of causation. You can't blame anyone. Right. What well, say so you can't blame Sheffield Wednesday? You can't blame the police. You can't blame the uh, stewards. You can't blame the city council at Sheffield, because it was a chain of events. Yeah. So that's how they hid it all. Mm. So them three words I've always said, even at a memorial, so can't stand them. And if there is a chain of causation. I believe every one of them should be brought up to book to answer. Obviously, when you when you were in this campaign, you were um, you're up against sort of quite powerful, very powerful forces. You know, the British state, the police, the security services, and the media. Um, what what sort of um, do you have any sort of um, advice or, or, or sort of memories from those times that you would bring to other people to in terms of how you deal with that kind of power um, and what, 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 what kept you going over those years in terms of dealing with? To answer your first point there, um, don't forget if a person's on their own trying to fight for something that they know is right and proper and just, they're on their own, it's going to be very difficult. They've got to get people behind them. We, when I say we were fortunate, we were fortunate, we lost our loved ones, but fortunate to stay together as a unit, is the word, probably is the word I'd use, to try and stay together as a unit and never, ever give up, no matter what the powers that be say to you. As well, one thing I said at the memorial service, and I wanted that message to come across very loud and clear. And I think it did do in the end because it was mentioned in Parliament by Theresa May. 
And I turned around and said, we've had the crumbs. We don't need the crumbs anymore. We want the whole loaf. And she knew what I meant by that. She mentioned that in Parliament. Um, these families didn't want the crumbs. They want the whole loaf. That was what I'd said at the memorial service. So obviously they'd heard that. And, you know, these families let them know we weren't going to go away. We're going to be there till the end, till we do get the truth. But we were very fortunate in a sense. We had a lot. What they forgot, there was 30,000 witnesses there that day at Hillsborough. There was 30,000 witnesses. They forgot about that. And that's where we, these, without our fans and them survivors and that support, we'd have got nowhere. We would never have got freedom of information. Only for them ch chanting justice. So I always say those poor people on their own, it would be very difficult. They've got to build up a momentum. They've got to go onto Facebook, got to go on Twitter. Go do everything in your power. Even though you feel weak and you will be weak. We were very weak in the beginning. But we became stronger. And the more they knocked us back, the more we were determined. No, you're not getting away with this. Because we're over the years, we had a lot of people, professionals as well, saying to us, you'll never be able to alter them verdicts. That will not happen. You'll not be able to alter 96 verdicts. Well, hey, look what the family's achieved. They did alter it. So we've changed things for the future, for other people. Hopefully, you know, that they take lead from what the Hillsborough families have done. And if they take listen and take heed, they'll get somewhere. Because the decent people will always back the innocent, mm. always. Well, thanks, Mother. We'll just take a, a short break there. We'll be back in, in a moment. with Margaret Aspinall in uh, Liverpool. Um, Margaret, you're talking about uh, the, the Hillsborough campaign, you know, what's amazing sort of progress that's been made over the years. But could you just say, looking back over the last 30 years, what has been, uh, in a sense, the things you're most proud of? What, what has the campaign achieved? Well, the first and foremost, what I'm most proud of is the families for what they've achieved, um, the survivors, the city itself, our city of Liverpool as well, because they believed us in us from the very, very beginning. They always, the councillors of this city believed what the families were saying. So they backed us. So things I'm most proud of, was, as I've just said earlier, is the families for staying together, for being so strong. But I'd also like to, to say I'm most proud also of the families we've lost. Without getting emotional, 
who were there from the very beginning. And unfortunately, they didn't see the truth or see the correct verdict. They died absolutely tormented. So I'm very proud of them. I am very proud of what the group has achieved, or the not just the group, but obviously the people themselves has achieved. It's getting the truth out there, getting the truth, and we have got the truth out there. Changing verdicts that were so morally wrong and unjust to get the correct verdict for our loved ones who could not speak for themselves. We had to be their eyes, their ears, and their voices. We achieved, for the love of all of them, the truth, the correct verdict. We've still got a bit of a journey to do at the moment. Things are still going on. But I have to be very careful that I do not do anything that would prejudice this on behalf of these families. So I'm proud of all of that. But I'm proud of the, my football club. And the reason I say that, because they've stood by us from the very beginning. Yes, there was one certain aspect where I wasn't happy with the club many years ago, many, many years ago. But that was understandable when I think back about it, and I won't go into it. But the club has been amazing to us. But I'm most proud of the people of my city. You know, I'm really proud of them yeah. because they've stood by us. They've helped us to achieve what we've achieved. And I hope what has been achieved will make it a better future for other people of this country. Because I've had, and the families have had a lot of support from all over this country since we've got the truth. But also indeed all over the world. And people are watching all over the world to see what transpires now. And I think it's important that accountability is shown. Over those years, you, you must have had times where you felt um, more, I don't know, under pressure or more that the, the, the authorities were not listening. And at other times, maybe later on, when you felt things were moving a bit, a bit better. So did you did you ever feel consciously that you were changing your tactics or, for instance, did you feel at some times you felt you needed to be more outspoken and, and at other times you could kind of go behind the scenes and talk to people a bit more? Was that something? Yes, you... there was many a time over these years that I've wanted to leave the group and not because of anything the family's done. It's because I felt I wanted to do things differently. And I couldn't do it for the simple reason you've got to take everybody's opinions into account of what happens with the group. And their opinions are just as important as mine. So you had to go along with, with the group. And I always felt sometimes we weren't doing enough. We weren't outspoken enough. And I think in some ways Trevor Hicks got it right when he said, you know, we still have to try and be dignified along the way and a lot of the families i'm sure felt the same as me but didn't say it well dignity has got us nowhere dignity has not won us anything but in some ways i was wrong dignity has trevor was spot on the dignity of it you get respect and i've seen that respect 
that's been earned by the families from certain people in power. I've seen that respect. Mm -hmm. I've got that respect. But also at the same time, though, not to be afraid to tell them exactly what you think and what should be getting done. And that's where I, I think I, as the as time was progressing, because I was always a member of the group, then I came onto the committee and I was on the committee for a number of years. Then when Trevor decided he's stepping down from being a chair and Phil Hammond took over from Trevor and he was the vice chair, he took over from Trevor and he'd done a great job as well. I must say these two guys were, were great leaders. Then I became Phil's vice chair and I learned a great deal by working alongside Phil. Uh, I, I learned a great deal from these guys. But then I thought, without being, um, what is the word they use? I'm only a woman, I'm just a mum. How am I going to take over from Phil who became seriously ill and he had to step down? And of course the family's asked me to be the chair. And I thought, how do I take over from these two guys who were so great at what they were doing? I'd never dealt with anything like this before. And that was in 2009. And I just thought to myself then, I've got to be strong. I've got to do this to the best of my ability. I'm not saying I got everything right. Of course I didn't. You know, but you've got to, everything, everything you do, you've got to think, especially when you've got to make quick decisions. Am I doing this right for them families? I know what yeah. I want, but how do I know what they want? Yeah. If you see what I mean. And I knew things had to change <coughs> because I always felt we weren't getting anywhere. So I always remember the day Andy Burnham uh, and Steve Rotherham got in touch with me. And it was over a, a letter that the then Prime Minister, who was Gordon Brown, uh, gave a letter for Andy to read at the memorial service. And when Andy and Steve phoned me up about this, I thought, oh gosh. Andy said to me, Margaret, would you read it out? And I thought, well, the families have never allowed an MP to speak at the memorial service because they've never had any trust. And understandably so, they'd never had any trust. And I thought, well, if I, I knew what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted Andy to get up there and read this letter because I knew he would get some stick. That fans would shout at him and shout things. But I thought, things have got to change because we're getting nowhere. So I didn't even go to the committee, which is wrong of me, really. Because, you know, you should go to your committee and check what they agree with. At least go to your committee. And if I go to the committee, they're going to say no. I knew they were going to say no, so I won't tell the committee. So I said to Andy, no, I want you to read it. And he said, I, I, I'm a bit nervous about doing that. I said, no, you read it. It was given to you. You read it, Andy. And I always remember the morning. Trevor somehow found out about it. 
Hicks. Trevor was away, and he'd be the first to admit it. What I love about Trevor Hicks is he's open, he's honest, and he'll admit to anything he might have got wrong. And he filmed me up this particular day, and he said, he was abroad, actually. And he said, Mark, I'm back for this service. He said, Brad, he said, Have you al- are you allowing Andy Burnham? To, and I went, yeah, he said, you can't do that, Margaret. Have you asked the committee? No. Margaret, you can't do that. He said, the families will go mad. And I said, I've made my decision, Trevor. At this moment in time, I'm the chairman. And it's a decision I'm sticking with. If it goes wrong, it's none of your fault. It's my fault. But I said, we're getting nowhere. We've got to do something drastic. And to me, that was a drastic decision. And... He said, I said, on my head be it, Trevor. I promise you I'll leave the group. If it goes completely against us, I will leave the group. I didn't want to leave the group then because after all of them years, you know, as I say, you've been there from the very beginning. You want to be there to see the end. So I said, I would leave the group, Trevor. I promise I won't let nobody else take the responsibility for this. And he said, okay, fine. So we left it at that. And if you speak to Andy, he would tell you this, that the morning of the, the service, Andy phoned me up and he went, uh, Margaret, I, I'm rather nervous still about doing this. I said, Andy, you've got to do it. And he came into the memorial service and before the service started, we were all in the red room at Danfield. And he comes over to me and he said, look, this is the letter. I said, Andy, you're reading it. So I thought he was so brave, so good. And he gets up and he starts reading the, the, the letter out. And if anybody looks at it, they'll see him just standing there. He took it. One person started off justice. And the whole, there was 32,000 people there that day. And the whole stage right round started chatting justice to him. And it's a thing I'll never forget. And I remember Trevor came up, crawling to me and he went, do you want me to get up? And I said, no, Trevor. He's man enough and big enough to take it. Mm-hmm. That's a thing I don't... And that is what I am proud of because so, that was a very brave decision mm-hmm. for me to have taken. So what did you learn about leadership versus... I don't know, going back to the committee, that would have been the sort of safe thing to do, if you like. What did you learn from that? What did I learn from that? But I've got a great committee. I've got Sue there, who's our secretary, and and she lost her brother at Hillsborough. We've got Jenny Hicks on the committee, who lost her two daughters, as you know. Got John Trainer, who lost his two brothers, and his mum used to be the treasurer. So I've got a good committee, but also a committee who's very strong, you know, and quite, uh, and that's what, and I thought, God, if th- nothing comes from this, I've got a family meeting to face, and you're going to get all the families, not just the committee, but all the families would go against you. Yeah. But they couldn't go against me because within, after that service, Andy came up to me and got hold of my hand, gave me up and said, I promise you, and I, I'll take this message back. Something's got to be done. And I said to Andy, Andy, don't let me down. I took a big responsibility there and I'm going to get it. 
from all of the family, and rightly so. If it had gone against us, rightly so. You know, yeah. I, I won't argue that, rightly so. But thank God, within weeks, I was meeting the Ministry of Justice, Trevor and I, Jenny, we were meeting the Ministry of Justice and saying, no, not enough. This is what we want. This is what should happen. These people are not all wrong. And then fewer rights. You listen to us. And then from that Ministry of Justice, but we couldn't tell anybody. It was just an executive committee. And we had to keep that completely confidential. Right. And that went on for a couple of months, having these meetings up and down London. And then the next thing is I was meeting the, um, obviously, the then Home Secretary, which was Alan Johnson. And this, you know, because they were going to set up a, a an independent panel. But we knew we needed somebody on it we could trust. But that was very difficult, a very difficult time. And um, in the end, I said, no, I said, if we don't get this person, I walk out, I go to the media, not having it. Mm -hmm. I started to become quite strong in my my ways. If, you, uh, if that sounds... Um, not pat myself on the back. Just more confident. I, I was more thinking, no, I've had to, I've, we've done it your way and got nowhere. Mm -hmm. We've listened. We've gone. We've done protocol. We've done everything that you've mm -hmm. asked. We've been dignified. We've kept our mouths shut. About time now you listen to us. And then from that, obviously it was meeting the new home sector, which, is, which was Theresa May, who I must admit has been very, very good. I mean, doesn't matter what party you support or who it is, as long as somebody's doing right by you and seen to be doing, being honest and open, and that's what all that matters to me. And she, she was quite good to us. Everything she promised me, I got. Did you ever um, feel over those years that you or any of your fellow committee members were under political pressure. Did, 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 did anyone ever try and put pressure well, it, on you? It, 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 It's a difficult time because obviously, you know, you can't... When you're meeting people, whether you like them or loathe them, it doesn't matter. You're not meeting them to get to be liked. And they're not meeting you to be liked. You're meeting them to get to the truth, to give us the proper answers to get all the evidence together and make sure that innocent people, because I said it in Parliament, I'd done a talk, and I phoned Andy Burnham up after we got the, the verdict of unlawfully killed. After all of them years, 26 years, 27 years, we got the, took us all that time just to get to the truth. It's disgusting. And I said to Andy, I phoned Andy up and, um, I said, I'd like to tell these people what I think of them now. But not on behalf of the group, but on a personal level of what my family's gone through. Because I had young children at the time, and I didn't realise the way I was neglecting them. My husband was there to look after them while I was doing everything. But my poor children didn't see the mum hardly. Mm -hmm. She was always busy doing something. And they used to say that. I mean, I had a granddaughter who phoned me up a while back here. I said, I'd like an appointment to see me nanny. And I thought, oh my God, I'm doing mm -hmm. to them what I've done to my own children. 
when they were little. So I wanted to, to just tell them in Parliament how I felt. So Andy arranged it. And obviously I, obviously I bring me right arm with me. So, and I asked her, would she like to come and join us? And I, brought, I took Sue Johnson as well, you know, to... And we went to, we got we went into this room and um and for the first time I'd said something in front of my children because I brought my son David. I don't know if it's a Kerry come or Andrew or somebody. I can't remember. Mm-hmm. Aunt Louise, my husband, but my husband knew about but I get into Parliament and I didn't realise some from the House of Lords were gonna come in and listen to me as well. So it was in the Betty Booth room road room. Yeah, I get. I know. I was starting to feel rather nervous, to be honest with you. Though, what am I going to say to them? Because <laughs> I don't have a script. I've never done a script. I just thought I like to speak how I'm feeling. And I just remember when I started off, I took this letter with me, and I just started off, and I remember saying, "Well, you're all sitting here now to listen to what I've got to say." But I said, "Every one of you here should be ashamed of yourselves." Every one of you, whether you were whether they were in government or not, they all let us down. And, and the reason I say that because I said, you see, the suit you're wearing doesn't make the man. You know, the dress you're wearing doesn't make the woman. What's within is doing the right thing and being decent, honest, open, and treating people how you like to be treated. I said, but what I'm most angry with, I said, you made me do something that I can't forgive myself for. And I can't forgive myself for it. And I'm openly saying it now to everybody to hear. Because when I lost my firstborn, who was just 18, I didn't have much money. My husband was out to work. I had four other young children. I had one, six seven, nine, and David, 15, and James was my eldest. He had a good job, worked in James Street in Liverpool. Worked in James Street in Liverpool, had. And I said, when I lost him, this is the letter I got. This is what I got offered. And do you know something? I had to accept it. And I had to accept it because I was fighting for my son and my survival for son. Because I didn't have money. And we needed money to travel, expenses, young children to keep going, husband out of work. And I told her, I said, so there's the letter to tell you I'm not lying. And it was £1,200 for the death of my son. And that was helped to bury him. Mm. Now, people don't know these stories. People think we got millions. No, we didn't. No, we didn't. That's what I got. And I had to accept that to fight and put it towards an ink. Generic inquest, we all, 40 odd of us had to pay and look for £100,000 for a generic inquest from the very beginning. So I had to accept it to put that towards and borrow the rest to pay for the inquest. My son, 
So I said, you all made me. And my children didn't know that because I hadn't told them. They were sitting there listening to that. They were upset. And I said, I want to give up. I'd love to give it back now mm. because I don't need it. But that's how you all made me feel. And the guilt I've got because I felt I was accepting. So do you understand where I'm coming yeah. from? It's a very difficult time. And that, I said, it's got to change for ordinary people. I said, these people, you are no better than the person walking outside that door now. Walking up and down, you are no better. The only difference with all of you, you've got more money. That's well, it. It sounds like you put them under pressure rather than putting you under pressure, Margaret. But um, anyway, look, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate uh, your, your, your time and your honesty and your words. So, so thank you very much. Thank you.